practices of prayer or even a new practice of prayer to be a praying community. And then the week after that was Jesus' teaching on treasure and this statement, where our heart is, that's where our treasure is also. And we talked a lot about money and resources and how we steward that and what it means to be generous and to give as a part of this church. And then that night, we also had an event called State of Discovery where we talked through our current financial situation. And one of the things that we committed to in that meeting was continuing to give you guys feedback and updates about where we are as a church financially, particularly in response to the giving challenge that we issued on January 27th. And so from time to time, we're just going to give you guys some updates on that. Today is one of those days. So I'm going to invite Kevin Blessum, our treasurer, to come up. You guys can welcome him as he makes his way up here to the stage. Kevin has been doing um, this role for the better part of a year now um, as, our, uh, as our treasurer. I think you can grab that mic right there. And uh, uh, it, right now we're kind of in a season where we're thinking about um, the next budget year and all that good stuff. Uh, just stand there. <laughs> you look good. So I wanted Kevin to come and, and, again, give you guys an update for the sake of transparency and to continue to keep this challenge in the front of our minds. So, Kevin, the, the first thing I'd love for you to share a little bit about with, uh, with Discovery is remind us of where we were in January when we had State of Discovery and we started issuing this challenge. Kind of give us a, a snapshot of that moment in time. Certainly, yeah. So I'd say to, to set the stage... For uh, quite a long period of time, for about 18 months, this church was without a lead pastor, and it seemed inevitably we, we had a, a decrease in attendance, and we had a decrease in uh, giving and offering that came along with that. And so we pretty much gutted the, uh, the budget for especially all of 2018 and reevaluated based on what the church was giving at the time. And even, you know, we went through different budget cuts and we, you know, gave, or we, uh, we cut back on spending for missions and some of these other expenses that we had going on. And even with all those cuts, we were finding ourselves where the church was at a loss of about $3,500 to $4,000 a month at probably our, our lowest point there for a number of months. We were then fortunate to have Steve come on board and him, him and the, the rest of the leadership team was really focused on and worked hard to uh, get more stability here from uh, a service standpoint, and, and uh, we saw an increase in giving slowly and steadily. We saw an increase in attendance. We had more uh, college students that were coming to the church and attending, more families that were, were beginning to call Discovery home, and so it was super encouraging, and that's when we had the, uh, the State of Discovery meeting that was in January, and so we went through that meeting we talked about where all the money was going and where our expenses were today. We gave some of the background that I'm just giving you a blurb on now. And then I updated the church that we were now at an operating deficit of not $35 to $4,000 a month, but it was actually down to $2,200 a month or so. Um, so that was very encouraging, and, and you know that brings up his call to action on the financial standpoint. And so today is just one of the other updates that we're going to give you guys a little bit more informally every quarter. And so uh, today, the, the way that the numbers are looking is we're seeing giving increase more and more and more, attendance grow more and more, and now we're at a, a loss of about only $1,200 or so per month. So of course, we're still not on the right side yet, but I just do want to applaud the, the, the giving that has increased, and you guys really answering that call uh, even back in January. 
Yeah, so any other things you want to say about the last three months? So it's been almost to the day, three months, a full quarter since that update. Any other things that you've seen, trends uh, within that or uh, encouraging signs when it comes to responding to the giving challenge? Uh, there's been a couple different, you know, miraculous things that have happened. I'll give you one example. This is something that I shared uh, even in January. But, you know, as, as money was tight and, and uh, we were operating at a deficit, we were starting to think through, okay, where are there even more things that we can cut out? And then randomly, we, we ended up finding about $10,000 in an account that nobody knew of at all. And so, you know, there's two or three instances that are similar and on par with that sort of an experience. So we are seeing God move and do really amazing things in the church financially as well. So then last question is just, what's the next step for us? What, what do you sense needs to happen in the next couple of months? Yeah. Uh, we all know this is a church that has a really big heart for the city of Davis. Uh, we want to be more present in the community. Uh, we want to increase our footprint in, in missions, once again, as that was one of the things that we've scaled back on. And then the last thing I would say, too, is we want to begin to, to save more and put money back into what was a savings account uh, for having a building of our own. Um, and so that's, you know, that, that fund that we had built up is, is what we more or less have been living off of uh, in this period of an operating loss. And so we would love to be able to start putting more funds back into that and building it back up. Uh, Roly and I had the opportunity to this past week build a, a rough draft of, of the budget for this upcoming fiscal year, which starts in July. And so some of these different line items that we're really praying about and hoping we can put in there do revolve around things like, hey, where, what are some other events that we can put on the calendar to, to have a footprint in Davis, uh, to reach the community, to help those in need that are in our very community here. Uh, of, again, you know, supporting uh, various types of, of missions and increasing what we're giving to Haiti and some of these other missions that we've, we've uh, been in contact with and been helping for quite some time. Uh, so, you know, what I would say to you guys is if, if you guys are listening to this and you're feeling prompted at all to uh, increase your giving or to begin giving to the church, I would just encourage you to really pray through that and see if that is something that God is, is asking of you, as there, there is a, a really practical need in uh, the church today. And, and certainly what I'll try to do and, and the leadership team is going to try to do is be as transparent as possible in regards to what our financial aspirations are and what we're going to be doing with, with the money that you guys are, are giving to the church. Great. Thanks, Kevin. Let's yeah, say so thank you. Any other any oh. questions that you have about this at all, uh, feel free to like come grab me after church, or you can always email treasurer at discoverydavis.com as well. Happy to talk through any of the, the details. Thanks. Um, just a couple of, of thoughts to follow up on all of that. Uh, you guys have responded significantly to the giving challenge. That needs to be said very clearly. We have um, seen... Uh, and I don't know all the details of this, so this is something you'd want to ask Kevin or Rolly, but we've seen the number of, of givers increase. We've seen the sort of base of giving increase. We've also seen a couple of pretty significant one-time gifts that have been a huge blessing uh, to our community. So you guys have risen to the challenge in a lot of ways. That needs to be said and applauded and celebrated. God has been providing for discovery. Um, but again, there's still uh, some, some ways to go in this challenge. And so we'll continue to have these conversations from time to time just as a way to keep this sort of in the front of our mind and, and to be able to point to moments where we very tangibly see God moving and providing for us as, uh, as a community. So well done. 
and keep going. <laughs> All right? Let's pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll get into our conversation in Matthew here. Heavenly Father, we have uh, come before you this morning deeply grateful for the ways that you have provided for discovery for 17 years now. And in particular, how you've been uh, moving in our community in the last couple of months to meet these financial challenges that we have. I pray um, that you would continue to use this as a moment to grow our faith. Many churches, especially churches here in the U.S., are able to sort of coast in the area of faith, but we have an opportunity here to grow in a very real way. And so, God, may we continue to see this not just as a, a numbers challenge or a financial challenge, but as a faith challenge, a, a way to very tangibly trust you and to see and experience your provision for us. Again, we're grateful for the ways that you have been doing that. We look forward to how you will continue to meet our needs and how you will continue to expand our understanding of how you work, how the economics of your kingdom works. Father, now we, uh, as we turn our attention to Scripture, would you help us to be present in this moment, to be fully here so that we can respond to your leading, to your prompting, to the things that uh, you would challenge us on and call us towards this morning. In particular, God, as we think about the balance between our part and your part in our relationship, would we be able to hold the tension between those things, knowing that there are things that we are called to do, and yet this is a relationship of faith and trust where we let go of control. And so in all these different things that we are talking about, that theme comes through this morning. And so may we grow in our awareness and understanding of that. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, um, we are now halfway through this journey through the book of Matthew. We started back in December with Advent. Last Sunday, Easter Sunday, was actually week 20 of 40. So we're now in the second half the backswing of our journey through Matthew. And just to remind us, once again, we are spending so much time in Matthew because we're in this new era, this new chapter of life in Discovery, Discovery 2.0, if you will. And we want the future to be rooted and grounded in who Jesus is. And so we are spending a lot of time with Jesus, with who he is and was, the things that he said, his words and actions, and in particular, considering deeply this thing that he called the kingdom of heaven. We want the kingdom of heaven to be the foundation of what we are building together. And so brick by brick, we're just making our way through this book. Now, a quick insight into where we are going. We are actually going to wrap up Matthew on our fall launch Sunday, which I believe is September 29th, 28th or 29th, somewhere far out there in the future. And we're going we're gonna to see that or use that as a, a vision casting Sunday where we're really going to start talking about what the next phase of our life as a church looks like. After that, we're going to spend a couple of weeks in a series called Our Kind of Crazy where we look at specifically this new vision. What does it mean for our gatherings and groups and our generosity here in Davis and around the world. So that's a sense of kind of where we've been and where we're going, all right? This morning, we're in Matthew chapter 15. So if you have a Bible, open with me there. And if you need a Bible, raise your hand and someone uh, on our team will come around and make sure that you have one of those. 
I'm just going to read the first 20 verses of Matthew 15. You can read along with me in your Bible, or the words will be up on the screen as well. Matthew chapter 15, verse 1. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. Then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? <laughs> he replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Peter said, explain the parable to us. Are you still so dull? Jesus asked them. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? And in the Greek, this is a very crass phrase that Jesus uses there. But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. I grew up in the 80s, okay, back in the day. My experience uh, of church back then was that there was a lot more emphasis at that time on, on what I would call outward markers or outward manifestations of Faith. There was a lot more concern about um, things like smoking and drinking and swearing and, and watching rated R movies. If you didn't do those things, then you were doing pretty good, all right? You, you were kind of looked at as being sort of a, a respectable or good Christian person. And a lot of Christians that I grew up with would have been way more offended or scandalized by someone lighting up a cigarette in the parking lot than they would have been by someone who didn't forgive the person they sat next to in church every week for 20 years. Now, these days, uh, an interesting phenomenon, I think, is that legalism is not just a church problem. Still plenty of legalism in church, for sure. But our secular world is phenomenally legalistic. And just think about some of the ways that we are judgmental here in Davis. <clears throat> <laughs> people will judge you for not composting or putting the wrong thing in the compost bin, right? People will judge you for using the wrong kind of plastic containers. People will judge you for leaving your kid in the car while you run into Starbucks. Now, maybe you shouldn't do that one, but you know what I mean. <laughs> And then there's this one, the ultimate walk of shame is when you forget to bring your reusable bags 
to co-op or nugget and you're, you have to walk with your paper bags out to your car and everyone's just giving you the stank eye like, oh, you forgot your reusable bags. All right, every culture, every community creates norms and then creates morality around these norms and then unleashes the morality police to make sure that people stay in line. Are you with me? Now, Matthew, um, we've divided our journey through Matthew into seven sections or movements, and the current movement we're looking at is we're calling a new community. And over the last several chapters, several weeks, we've seen this building conflict. We see this conflict again today. Jesus knows that his time on earth is beginning to run out. And so a major theme of this section is him training his disciples in the values of this new community. One thing that needs to be stated, this is very obvious, but it should be clear to us by now. This new community Jesus thinks of as a kingdom, and this kingdom has a king. Again, obvious, but the strong tendency of human beings is towards one or the other. We either want the king or the kingdom, and we struggle with accepting both of those things. We want a king. We like Jesus. We're excited about the promise of heaven after we die. This idea of Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior, by the way, a phrase that never appears in Scripture. But there's no kingdom. There's no way of life. There's no mission or connection to the world that we live in. I think many churches, many circles within Christianity settle for this. The king, but no kingdom. On the other hand, lots of movements that are about the kingdom, about justice and order and community and ways of being in the world, but there's no Jesus. This is is the whole secular humanist project. How do we create the kingdom without the king? This is fast-forwarding a little bit, but in a couple of chapters, Jesus says this amazing thing. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This, he says, is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. What is Jesus saying? He's saying king and kingdom. We've talked a lot about the the kingdom of heaven being the kingdom of right relationships. That's what we see here. Right relationship with God, the king, and right relationship with each other, with our neighbors, the kingdom. This is the kind of community that we are invited to. This is what Jesus is creating, king and kingdom, a new kind of community. Now, the scene that we're looking at this morning opens with the Pharisees traveling all the way from Jerusalem to somewhere in Galilee to meet with Jesus. And they come on a mission to defend the purity laws, all right? Here come the morality police. Jesus and his disciples have not been using reusable bags, and they are going to come and point this out. Now, part of their motivation goes back to a showdown that happened a little bit earlier. Back in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus offers a differing interpretation of the Sabbath, the holy, set-apart, sacred day for the Jewish community. And he even claims to have authority over that law. And this conflict leads to the Pharisees beginning to plot, how can we get Jesus killed? How can we get this guy out of the picture? 
So here, several chapters later, another opportunity to build their case against him. But there is more going on here than just having it out for Jesus. Which raises the question for us, why this issue? What's the deal with hand washing? Like, it seems like a good idea to wash your hands before you eat. (laughs) Certainly this is something we work on with our children, but why was this such a big deal for them? Why travel all the way from Jerusalem to call Jesus out over this? We've got to understand a couple of things about the Jewish worldview and the, the Pharisees' worldview in order to understand what's going on here. So one... Jews in general, and the Pharisees in particular, had this very distinct understanding of secular space and spiritual space. They saw a very clear line of demarcation between the holy and the profane. For them, there were a variety of places that were considered to be holy places. The temple was the most holy place. But the majority of spaces that they would have interacted in were profane. And being in those spaces made you unclean. And so it was inappropriate then to enter into a holy space in a profane or unclean condition. So if you went out into the world to do your work or to run to the store, you'd have to wash your hands when returning to engage in something holy. Whether that be making a sacrifice or praying or eating a meal. Now again, some of this makes sense to us. If you go to the bathroom, it is a major social faux pas to not wash your hands when you come out, right? Like we will judge you for that. (laughs) But this was deeper for them than germs. This was about seeing themselves as a holy set apart. That's one of the definitions of the word holy, to be set apart, a set apart people. This leads to a, a second thing. In their worldview, these rituals were not ultimately about morality. They were about identity. And certainly there was, you know, some moral issues wrapped up in this. But this was about identity, being a set-apart, holy people. And this should sound familiar to us. Because, again, this was the issue that came up in the conversation about Sabbath. So, in other words, hand-washing wasn't just about being... A good person or a moral person, it was partly about that. It was mostly about being a good Jew. It was about being different than the Romans or the Greeks or any of the other Gentile groups. We are holy. We are set apart. We are different. And one of the ways that we are different is we respect the holy and the profane dichotomy. We wash our hands. We make sure that we are holy when we enter a holy space. And so along comes Jesus, who intentionally and oftentimes flagrantly blurs these lines. And it messes with them. Jesus eats with sinners. He does something holy, sharing a meal together with the profane. Good Jews, good rabbis did not do holy things in a profane manner. When Jesus says, I am Lord of the Sabbath, or one greater than the temple is here, again, blurring the lines, because this was the holiest time, the holiest day, the holiest place. And Jesus is saying, nope, I am more important than both of those things. And then Jesus himself is the ultimate blurring of these lines, both fully God and fully human the total blending of the profane 
and the holy. And what Jesus does through his life, his invitation to live in this kingdom of heaven, his death, his resurrection, all of this is to say there is a new way of looking at the world, which is really an old way of looking at the world. Jesus is restoring creation back to the way it was always intended to be. Everywhere is holy ground. God and man dwelling together in right relationship with each other. The lines have been blurred. Now, the other thing going on here is the Pharisees had taken an original idea, probably a good idea, washing your hands before you eat, a way to make sure that you are clean both literally and spiritually, and have once again turned it into a whole system that had very little to do with its original intention. There's a a, a tradition around some of this. It's said that the Pharisees would even take baths every time they left the house and came home to make sure that they were fully cleansed of all the, the uncleanness, the profaneness that they might have encountered while they were out in the world. But Jesus points out that they have once again missed the point. His words in verse 3, you've forsaken the command for the sake of your tradition. Now, Jesus does an interesting thing here. He kind of takes a sharp right turn, and to illustrate this point, he he brings up a whole different issue. And he names the fourth commandment, which is to honor your father and mother, and then a follow-up commandment from Exodus 21 as a way to highlight the inconsistency of the Pharisees. In their study and interpretation of the law, they had accumulated so much knowledge. In fact, the Pharisees probably have known more about the first five books of the Bible than any human beings at any point in history. But they had used that knowledge to look for loopholes in the law. In our language and context, they knew all the write-offs in the tax code. And so what they had done here is they'd figured out a way to withhold resources from their families by dedicating it or devoting it to God. It was sort of like, well, this part, you know, all this stuff has been dedicated to God. If we set it aside, we wrote it off. So you can't tax me on it or I can't use it to take care of my parents or extended family, cousins, whatever it might have been. They found a way to protect their stuff and still keep the appearance of following the law. And in so doing, Jesus says, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Now the big issue here that Jesus keeps pressing them on in all of these scenes we've been looking at leading up to this point and certainly here today, the issue is appearances versus what's really going on inside, the heart. Everything looks great on the outside, but it's rotten at the core. There is a heart problem here And this is a theme that's come up many times in Matthew. Some of the, the places that the heart appears in Matthew should be on the screen here. Notice that three of them come in today's scene. Look at what Jesus says next. You hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. You are saying all the right things. You are doing all the right things, but we are not in right relationship. Our hearts are far apart. Then Jesus finally circles back to the issue. He says, it's not what goes in, but what comes out that defiles us. Yet another 
kingdom reversal. Those who appeared good turn out to be rotten. Those who look like they are a mess are elevated. What comes out is more important than what goes in. Then this funny scene or funny part of the scene happens, right? The disciples come and say, do you know the Pharisees were really offended by all that? (laughs) Now, the disciples, you know, we continue to see more and more of them um, as we make our way through Matthew. Sometimes we see them doing really good stuff, right? They ask great questions and they're tracking and they seem to be growing. And then there are these moments where they just totally blow it and fail in oftentimes spectacular ways. And then there are these moments where they're just kind of like precious and cute. Like, oh, you guys worried about the Pharisees' feelings. Now, to be fair to the disciples, they did live in an honor-shame culture. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law have traveled a great distance to seek Jesus out. This is a sensitive issue that they bring up, and Jesus is not being a good host. He is not being hospitable or honorable to them. And so you can sort of understand this impulse that they have, but it's also like, guys, read the room. This is, this is a conflict. <laughs> and look at what Jesus says in response to that. Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. Leave them. They are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Now we've seen the Pharisees break from Jesus. And really the breaking point again was back in Matthew chapter 12. This issue about the Sabbath. They begin to turn on Jesus. This is no longer just a disagreement. They're looking for ways to kill him. Here Jesus is now breaking from them. This has been building for a while. But he makes it very explicit here. Leave them. They are blind guides. This is one of the more direct and forceful moments Jesus has with the disciples. This kingdom of heaven thing that he's doing, this new community that he is building is going to require them to leave the old ways behind. And for some of us here, there are old ways of behaving and more specifically, there are old ways of relating to God that we are going to need to leave behind. To embrace the king and the kingdom, we will need to leave behind blind guides and bad theology and unhelpful systems and practices. The good news here is we don't have to wash our hands before we eat, right? Just kidding. Please do that anytime we share a meal. (laughs) But joking aside, this is a really important truth for us. It is okay to leave some things behind. In fact, it is necessary for us to leave some things behind as we build something new. Now, having said this, I want to temper that just for a moment. Having said this, this is not an invitation to burn everything to the ground. This is not an invitation to Christian anarchy. Over the past 20 years, I've seen a number of what I would call deconstruction movements. And a lot of these movements will point to a text like this or to this exact text and say, see, throw it all out. Start over from scratch. Let's reinvent the wheel. 
And here's the thing that I've observed so many times. There's a pattern that happens here. There's a moment of deconstruction followed by a moment of new codification followed by a new oppression. Now, I'm not going to name any of these movements because I don't want it to be a distraction to us this morning. So I'm going to use a very silly example. Just roll with it, okay? Let's say that you are part of a community that says godly spiritual people only eat with forks, all right? The law says to use forks. We love forks. That's just what we do. This is who we are. And then from within that community, there's this group of people who say, hey, you know, the spoon is pretty cool. It's another great way to eat. Imagine being able to eat soup again. This is going to be so great. This pro-spoon faction rises up. And what happens is there's a healthy moment of deconstruction. Again, this can be a good impulse, a reaction to something dysfunctional. Spoons are good. Let's use spoons. We don't have to just eat with forks. But inherently, the critique is about tearing down, and it becomes anti-fork. I have to be very careful about how I say this. I'm realizing right now. Right? Nothing good can come of using forks. And so out of the rubble, there's a new code of behavior that is formed, usually the exact opposite of whatever came before. Now we only eat with spoons. And very quickly, that new code becomes a new form of oppression. Any fork eaters are now seen as narrow-minded, old-fashioned, sticks in the mud who can't get with the times. The problem here is that we exchange one set of rules for another set of rules, one set of traditions for another set of traditions, and ultimately one kind of oppression for a whole other kind of oppression. And we have not yet dealt with the real issue. We have not yet dealt with our hearts. Father Richard Rohr says, the best criticism of the bad is the practice of the better. Oppositional energy only creates more of the same. Oppositional energy only creates more of the same. And another way of saying it, I think, is this. Oppositional energy allows us to avoid dealing with what's really going on in our heart. Now, by the way, behavior still very much matters. Leave them is not an invitation to do whatever you want to do, to anything goes. Jesus sets the bar still very high. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart. And these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. Interestingly... Each of these things that Jesus names here, murder, adultery, etc., all a call back to Matthew 5 through 7, all appear in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember how, hard the bio, how high the bar was there? Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, the invitation here is to follow Jesus and his way of life, to be in relationship with him, to have our hearts transformed by him. Of course, Jesus isn't asking us to be perfect on our own effort. We can never do this. 
This is not an invitation to a new set of rules and codes. Jesus does not want us to get caught up in that cycle, that oppositional energy. He wants us to live and to flourish in the kingdom of right relationships. Legalisms are appealing to us, I think, because we want to be in control. And in this particular instance, we want to be in control of our salvation. We want to do it on our terms. Heart matters, though, much more complicated because it gets into the deep, deep issue of trust. And are we going to let go of control? Later in the New Testament, we read, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do you hear the paradox in there? Work out your salvation for it is God at work in you. Work out your salvation, for it is God at work in you. We humbly, that's what fear and trembling means in these verses, we humbly relinquish control. We let Jesus be king, and we allow him to do the work of changing our hearts. There's a great sort of sub-story in the Chronicles of Narnia uh, by C.S. Lewis. In the uh, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, we're introduced to a character named Eustace Scrub. Great name. Super annoying character. He, he's this bratty, arrogant, greedy, jealous guy who, who sort of hooks up with the main characters for uh, a period of time. And, and they end up on an island where Eustace, doing his own selfish thing, wanders off from the rest of the group And as he's wandering around this island, a storm comes up. So Eustace ducks into a cave where he finds, surprise, a vast treasure of gold and jewels. It's a dragon's cave. It's a dragon's hoard. And Eustace, again, being a a greedy sort of character, is thrilled with this discovery. And he falls asleep lying on top of it, just sort of, you know, hugging, uh, getting cozy with his new treasure. But when he wakes up, he's turned into a dragon. And at first, he's like, wow, this is pretty cool. I'm a dragon. And then after a while, he begins to realize, oh, my gosh, I'm a dragon. I'm a hideous beast. My friends are not going to remember me. And and how do I get out of this skin? He does all these things to try to get the dragon off of him. He, He starts ripping it, trying to get the scales off. He washes himself in this pool outside of the cave, but nothing that he does, no matter how hard he tries, he cannot get it off. And then Aslan shows up. And if you're familiar with the story, you know Aslan, this lion, is sort of the Jesus figure in the world of Narnia. He shows up and he says, you must allow me to do it. You must allow me to do it. Work out your salvation, for it is God who is at work in you. And Aslan takes one of his razor-sharp claws. He starts ripping Eustace's dragon skin off for him. In Eustace's words, the very first tear he made was so deep, I thought it had gone straight into my heart. There's that word again. After Aslan is done ripping the skin off and washing him in the pool, Eustace is once again the boy he was meant to be. And not just that, he is a new creation. Aslan gives him new clothes. And he begins to live in new ways, less of his old, greedy, arrogant, smart aleck self. 
Work out your salvation, for it is God at work in you. Now to close, I want to give us a couple of affirmations, a couple of statements about who we are as a church, and then a couple of questions that I think can challenge us in some different ways. So first affirmation is this. As a community, we worship, follow, and trust King Jesus. Now again, this may sound very obvious, but it needs to be said very clearly. We do not, therefore, worship other things. We worship, follow, and trust King Jesus. We do not worship models of morality, systems of morality. We do not worship models of church. We do not worship political outcomes. We do not worship systematic theologies or doctrine or mission statements. We do not worship worship styles. And this one might be hard for some of us. We do not worship Scripture. We worship King Jesus. And King Jesus will lead us to love Scripture and to love the church and to want to name good doctrine and clear mission statements, to want to fight for better policies in our world and for more structures that lead to his kingdom coming and flourishing in our world. But we worship Jesus, not the outcomes. And so the question here for us, is there anything, even good things, that we worship in place of King Jesus? Are there things that we worship, even good things, in place of King Jesus? Second affirmation, we will leave behind anything that gets in the way of us worshiping, following, and trusting in King Jesus. Are there any blind guides that you need to leave behind? For us as a community, are there traditions? Are there ways of doing things? Are there, we've always done it like that, kinds of things that we need to leave behind? And then third, we repent of our bent towards wanting to control our transformation. We submit ourselves to King Jesus. We allow him to do the work, painful though it might be, of transforming our hearts. Because the good news is if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. So where do you need to let go? What do you need to let go of in order to trust Jesus and in order to allow him to do his work in you, this work of transforming your hearts. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, this is a, a challenging scene, uh, some challenging ideas for us because of the subtleness of the ways in which we can substitute uh, traditions, rules, the teachings of, of people for real relationship with you, where we submit ourselves to lots of other things, but not to you as our king, where we live in lots of worlds, but not in your kingdom. So Father, I pray that you would, you would stir up the courage within us to leave the things behind that we need to leave behind, whether those are behaviors or old ideas or, or dysfunctional ways of relating to people or to you. 
Help us to leave all that behind so that we can enter into the new thing that you are doing. And Father, we also confess and repent of our desire to want to control our salvation, to want to control this process of you working in our life. There are things that we need to do. Help us to work out our salvation, but ultimately it is you that do the work in us. Our part is letting go. Having an open hand towards what you want to do in us and through us. Help us to relinquish the outcomes, to trust, worship, and follow King Jesus wherever he might lead, even if it's painful transformation of our hearts. Because we want to live in the new. The old has gone, the new has come. Thanks be to God. We pray all this this morning in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.